Welcome to your Activities of Daily Living or your ADLs lecture. Throughout this presentation, we are going to discuss the activities of daily living and the nurse's role when providing care for our patients when we're referring to ADLs. If you have any additional questions, please write them down and bring them to class with you. Also, refer to your textbook, Fundamentals of Nursing, Volume 1 by Wilkinson under the chapter Facilitating Hygiene. And if you have the third edition textbook, that will be chapter 25. For those of you that may have older versions, you just open up the book front cover, look in the table of contents, and look for the chapter Facilitating Hygiene so that you can find that information. So what are ADLs or activities of daily living? These are activities such as taking a bath or showering, washing your hair, brushing your teeth, things that we do to help improve self-image and decrease any infection or disease. Usually healthy people perform these personal hygiene tasks by themselves. However, some patients may need assistance due to illness or injury that they have experienced. As the nurse, you are responsible for providing the necessary assistance and at the same time encouraging the patient to have self-care practices and promote independence as much as possible. When we are promoting this independence and self-care, it's helping improve the patient's self-esteem. So activities of daily living include personal grooming and cleanliness activities such as bathing or showering, oral care, hair and nail care, dressing and undressing, eating, toileting, and mobility. And we are going to talk about these in greater detail as this presentation goes on. Let's talk about the nurse's role in a little bit more detail. So as the nurse, we are going to assess our patient. So what are we going to assess for? We are going to assess for the self-care abilities. What things can our patient do by themselves versus what things does the patient maybe need assistance with? Again, we need to be able to provide our patients with assistance, but we also want to make sure that we are promoting self-care and independence as well. So, for example, if we have a patient who had a stroke, and that stroke affected movement in that patient's left arm. So say that stroke left that patient without the ability to move that left arm. Now, when we're talking about ADLs, say we're talking about bathing our patient. We give a patient a washcloth, we hand it to them in their right hand, they're able to wash the left side of their body without any difficulties. They have full range of motion of that right arm. Now, when it comes to needing to wash the left side of their body, or I'm sorry, the right side of their body, the patient does not have movement of that left arm. So it's gonna be very difficult for that patient to be able to do that. So with this type of situation, we are going to promote that self-care and that independence and have that patient wash the left side of their body. But when it comes to the right side, we are then going to assist that patient with that particular task. Again, we want to encourage the patients to have 
as much of their self-care as possible, but we still need to provide assistance and care to our patients. Let's talk about delegating appropriate hygiene care tasks. You really need to assess your patient before you delegate any tasks to anyone. If you've noticed something that stands out to you that would not be appropriate to delegate, then you as the nurse need to make sure that you do not delegate those tasks. Those would be tasks that you would need to complete yourself. And if you needed assistance, then you would need to grab other team members to help you provide those ADLs. So depending on what it is. We also wanna make sure that we assess the client's limitations. So we need to know what the patient's limitations and restrictions are and the amount of assistance needed. You may not be able to delegate a hygiene task to one person. You may need to get two additional people on board and you there as well. So again, we really need to make sure that we assess that before we delegate any tasks to anyone else. We also wanna make sure that we assess for any presence of any tubes, such as drainage tubes, catheters, IV tubing, any sort of bandages that need to make sure that they maintain dry during baths um, or toileting. So those are again some things that we really need to, as nurses, assess for um, with our patients. Also, we wanna instruct any nursing assistants uh, personnel regarding any sort of issues that maybe the patient might have. So we want to make sure that the uh, nursing assistant per personnel or a patient care tech, they know the client's limitations. They need to know if, how much assistance is needed. They need to know if the patient uses an assistive device, if they have any presence of tubes, any observations that they make during that hygiene care to report them back to you. If you are having that patient, or I'm sorry, if you are having that patient care tech provide a bath to that patient and they see a skin issue, they need to make sure that that's reported back to you so that way you can notify the physician. So when you're delegating any sort of task, you really wanna make sure that you work together as a team, and then there's also follow-up after that task is um, delegated off. And you wanna make sure that you do get follow-up after that task has been completed. As the nurse, you are ultimately responsible for the patient, the patient's condition, and the care that's provided to that patient. So again, you always wanna make sure that you get that follow-up from them. Types of scheduled hygiene care. So the following types of scheduled hygiene care are, are provided in most facilities with the long-term care settings and then also the acute care settings, which is the hospital settings. Although we do have scheduled routine care that we provide our patients, we should still individualize these activities and involve the patient in that as much as possible. Because again, we want to make sure that we're providing that self-care and independence for our patients. So in most facilities, they have hourly rounding. Hourly rounding, you're checking for comfort and for safety. This consists of seeing the patient every hour on schedule. During this time, you can offer help with self-care needs such as pain relief, repositioning, and toileting. 
And this also helps improve the patient's safety because it reduces the risk of call light use. And when I say that, I mean, if we're rounding on our patients every hour, they're not necessarily gonna have to use that call light. And if they don't have to necessarily use that call light, then they might not be tempted to get up out of bed and try to do something themselves. So of course, we always wanna give them their call light because they may need something in between then, but it helps reduce the amount of call lights that are being utilized. That really helps, oh, my nurse is being really attentive. They're gonna be here in just an hour. I'm gonna have her take me to the restroom then. So we just really want to make sure that we are rounding to provide that comfort and safety. I'm not saying that call lights are a bad thing. I'm just saying that it kind of helps reduce that risk of patients getting up out of bed themselves when maybe they're not supposed to. Early morning care is provided as soon as the patient wakes up. So this includes preparing the patient for breakfast because most of the time in the long-term care setting they are going to the dining room for breakfast. So we are going to assist our patient with toileting, washing their face and hands, providing mouth care or oral care, and then also providing any sort of comfort measures that that patient would need. AM care or morning care is hygiene that occurs after the patient has eaten breakfast. And this is depending on the patient's self-care abilities, if they're able to use the bathroom by themselves, if they're able to bathe themselves, you know, we provide oral care, skin care, um, shaving if needing, if needed, um, if they need help dressing. We also want to make sure that we are helping change the uh, bed linens, straighten them out if they do need changing, helping tidy up the room maybe from our early morning care. So everything that we would need to do to get those patients ready. Usually during our AM care, our patients will receive their baths. It depends. Some patients receive it in the morning, some receive it at night. So we'll just have to look at that particular patient's schedule to see when they are scheduled to get their shower or bath for, for that time. So PM care consists of afternoon care. So it's preparing the patient for visitors or afternoon rest. So you may assist your patients with toileting, hand washing, any oral care. Again, straightening out those bed linens, you may need to change them, reposition the patient, and offer any comfort measures to that patient, such as pain medication. HS care stands for hours of sleep. So this is care given to the patient before they go to sleep. We're gonna offer the same care that we offered with our um, PM care. And we can also um, add in different relaxation um, activities for that patient. So maybe we're going to have them watch TV for a little while, make sure that we turn off the lights, provide a um, like their call light, any water that they might want by the side of their bed, um, anything that we can kind of do to help promote a relaxing, relaxing environment and getting them ready for bed. So we again want to make sure that we perform those ADLs again, making sure we get our patients up to the restroom, providing that oral care, and then also at this time 
Some of our patients will want to take out their dentures, so we need to provide that denture care to our patients as well as that oral care. So just keep that in mind as well when caring for these patients with the HS care. So there are different types of bath that we can provide our patient, and as a nurse, we need to choose the type of bath that will meet our patient's needs. So, an assist or help bath, this is commonly termed as a bath that is used to help the patient in areas that may be difficult for them to reach, such as their back, their feet, or their legs. We can also think back to that stroke patient that I talked about and the areas that were difficult for that patient to reach was that right side because they had that left-sided um, weakness or non-movement of that left arm. So again, these are areas in which we are going to help assist our patient. With our assist bath though, this is really where we are going to promote that self-independence so that the, if the patient can actually assist and wash certain areas, we wanna again encourage that patient to do that. Sometimes in the long-term care facility, you need to look at the patient's chart because some patients will say, oh no, you have to give me my, my bath. The nurse always gives me my full bath. Refer back to their care plan and make sure that's true. Sometimes they really like nursing students because you guys are so helpful that they kind of overutilize you when we want to make sure that we're still encouraging that independence. So that's what an assist help bath is. A partial bath is when the areas that are cleaned are only the areas that really cause any odor or discomfort. So this is such areas as the axillary region and the peritoneum. So we're going to provide pericare to our patients, we're going to wash underneath the arms, usually the hands and the face also get washed um, with these partial baths as well. Partial baths are usually completed because a patient can't tolerate getting a complete bath. So a complete bath means the patient's entire body from head to toe is washed without any sort of assistance. Okay. So sometimes our partial baths are given to patients just due to some illness that is going on that they're not able to get a full complete bath. So again, we need to make sure that we are choosing the type of bath that meets our patient's needs. A bed bath is for those patients that remain in bed um, and that are unable to bathe themselves. So we might have to assist those patients in providing a bed bath or a bath for them. Um, there's different types of um, baths that we can do when they're in the bed bath. So we can just use towels and soap and water to provide that bath or we also have prepackaged commercially um, prepared products that we can also use such as those bag or packaged baths that we can use. And again, those are just usually commercially prepared. They kind of look like wipes that we can utilize to um, help our patient bathe. For shower tub baths, usually for showers, most of the ambulatory patients will prefer to um, take a shower 
Also, some of the long-term care facilities might have like shower chairs that even if the patient um, is in a wheelchair, that they, if they can stand and bear weight and pivot, and we can pivot them into one of those bath chairs and get them in the shower and help assist them um, with their showering needs as well. So again, it just depends on what's going on with our patient and which shower best meets the needs of our patients. There are tub baths um, that can um, be utilized as well. We don't see these as much in the long-term care facility in the acute care setting just because there is um, a safety concern as such as the patient falling, the ground being very slippery, more at risk for falling. It also shows that these baths are a nice reservoir for pathogens. So we try not to utilize those um, as much, but sometimes our patients, they do have that in their plan of care. Sometimes our baths can help with stiff joints, um, with pain, they also might have therapeutic baths that um, are provided to patients. Maybe they need a warm sits bath um, to help with inflammation of maybe the peritoneal area, the vaginal area, or any rectal tissue. So those sits baths really help kind of calm that inflammation. Another example of a therapeutic bath is say somebody some patients have like a skin condition psoriasis where they maybe need like an oatmeal bath to kind of help soothe, soothe that irritation. So those are the times you would see those utilized, but for the most part, the actual baths aren't used as frequently um, in the long-term care or the acute care setting. There are many benefits to bathing. One of the benefits is to really help minimize skin irritation. We have to think that our urine and our stool are very acidic, so it can cause irritation, redness, and breakdown of the skin. It also helps reduce the chance of infection by getting rid of the bacteria. Um, that's why we want to make sure that even if our patient has an episode of incontinence, that we do provide pericare because we do want to make sure that we decrease that chance of them getting an infection. It also helps stimulate circulation promotes range of motion. So if our patient is having to say they're giving themselves a bath and they have to lift their arm up to reach under their axillary region, again this is promoting range of motion by that patient kind of helping and um, moving their arms, moving their legs to really help promote that range of motion. It of course reduces body odor and provides comfort to that patient. It also really improves their self-image. If you can think about after you take a shower, how good you feel after you feel clean. So it really does help improve that self-image. It also strengthens the nurse-patient relationship. During this time, the patient is in a very vulnerable state. So during this time, you can really connect with that patient you can provide a really good assessment, you can look at their skin, things like that. You start talking about things that you wouldn't necessarily talk about if you were just, you know, during that time. A lot of information that, you know, you get from patients is when you spend time with them. And when you are providing a patient a bath, you're spending that quality time with that patient so they might divulge more information to you. Maybe they tell you about, um, more of their health history, maybe they'll tell you about their family, things like that. And it really does help 
strengthen that nurse-patient relationship because that patient then is going to be able to trust you more and more. So again, it's very important. When bathing a patient, you wanna make sure that you have the equipment needed. So you need to grab soap and water. With water, you wanna make sure that the water is not too hot and it's not too cold. You can only imagine if you think about the time where you have ever taken a cold shower or the water turns cold, it's very uncomfortable for you. So with our patients, we need to be very aware of the temperature of the water. If you are completing a bath where you have water in a basin, you may need to change out that water several times to keep that water the appropriate temperature for that patient. And they say the range for our patients for the water is about 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So just making sure that we utilize um, the correct temperature for our patients and that it's comfortable for them. So you can even ask them, is this too hot? Is this too cold? To make sure that you get the temperature that is appropriate for that patient. You always wanna grab towels and washcloths. Again, you wanna grab extra washcloths so that if you do take the patient into the shower, we don't wanna get any shampoos in their eyes, so we wanna grab that extra washcloth so that they can cover their eyes to make sure they don't get any soap in it. We also wanna make sure that we get a bath blanket. So those are usually those blankets that are kept in those nice blanket warmers. Um, those are our bath blankets. Those are those thicker blankets that um, we can utilize, especially when we're giving a patient a bed bath to keep them warm throughout the bath. So we wanna make sure that we do utilize that. Also wanna grab a clean gown, okay? Because after we get our patients nice and clean, we don't want them putting on a dirty or soiled gown. So we wanna make sure we get a clean gown. We also wanna make sure that we look for any IVs, any drains, any tubes that our patient may have and just be very careful when we are bathing our patients that we are careful of those um, tubes and drains. So if we need to get IV covers, things like that, we wanna make sure that we do grab that as well when we gather our equipment. We also wanna ask our patient what their preference is on their bathing products. Do they have their own special shampoo or special soap that they like, lotion that they like after they have a bath? Because again, we wanna promote that independence. So if that patient has a particular product that they like to use, we definitely will utilize that product. If patients don't have a preference, usually facilities um, have a variety of just generic bath products that we can utilize for those patients. Just some other considerations when we are providing a bath is don't use soap anywhere near the eyes, have the patient cover their eyes, especially when shampooing their hair, and complete in a head-to-toe fashion, cleanest to dirtiest fashion as well. And then please refer to your procedural checklist, uh, your skills checklist, your skill videos for a step-by-step -step guide on bathing a patient. Next we're going to discuss is pericare. So pericare is cleansing of the genitals and the peritoneum. The pericare promotes comfort, it also prevents odor, it helps prevent any skin breakdown and also infection. We usually provide pericare when we are giving our patients baths but we also may complete this at other times as well, such as before we put in a Foley catheter, if our patient has any episodes of incontinence of urine or stool during a partial bath, because again, 
remember that partial bath, we're going to clean those more odorous areas, which is that axillary area and the peritoneum. And then also if there's any drainage present, so such as stool, vaginal discharge, things like that, we will provide pericare as well. So when we're providing pericare, we do wanna have some considerations um, in place. Um, because of personal, cultural, or religious beliefs, some patients may wish to have the same sex caregiver pr provide the bath or the pericare or at least be present in the room. So whether you or the patient are the same or opposite sex, peri care can be very embarrassing for you both. So just making sure that you have a professional manner and you provide that patient with privacy, such as shutting the door, pulling the bed curtains or the drape, and covering or draping the patient um, as needed. So when you are providing pericare, don't just pull that curtain, because a lot of times if that curtain's just pulled, a lot of other um, nurses, other healthcare staff might just come and pull open that curtain, and that can be very um, detrimental to that patient, because they can be very embarrassed that somebody just walked in while they're having pericare provided to them. So also really shut that door. If your room has a door, please shut that door to kind of help provide that extra privacy for that patient. A lot of times when that door is closed, I know that my coworkers are either providing pericare, they're doing some sort of procedure where I need to make sure that I knock and don't just open the door. So just keep that in mind as well. Make sure that you also wash your hands before and after pericare is provided. Of course, you would always wear gloves, but just really make sure that you are still washing hands before and after. Of course, you wear gloves anytime you're in contact with any bodily fluids, but we want to make sure that we're not spreading any infections, so hand washing, hand washing, hand washing. When providing peri care to our female and male patients, there is a technique that should be followed. With our female patients, we want to wipe in the direction from front to back. So what does that mean? So from the vaginal area, we want to take a clean washcloth. We want to start at the top of the labia and work our way down in a stroke fashion to the rectum area. So from front to back, you would clean that. Every stroke that you have, you'd want to use a clean part of the washcloth. You never want to take the washcloth that you just went from front to back, because of course that washcloth ended close to the rectum. We don't want to take that bacteria then and bring it back up to the front and clean front to back. So we always need a new clean part of that washcloth with each stroke. And we can show you a technique that can be utilized when you guys get to your preclinical time. So more to come on that. You also have your skill videos to watch that does show you the technique on how to provide pericare to a female. With our male patients, it's a little bit different. We start in a circular motion. So we start at the head of the penis and then work our way down the shaft, then to the scrotum. We wanna make sure that we use a clean part of the washcloth every circular motion that we do because again we don't want any bacteria to go up into that urethra to cause any sort of infection. So again to see this being done please refer to your skill videos. They do have a 
video on how to provide pericare to a male. Now, if our patient is uncircumcised, so they still have the foreskin, we need to make sure that we do another step further when we're providing pericare to our patients. So what do I mean by that? Well, when we're providing pericare, we want to take that foreskin and we want to pull it back so it exposes the tip and the head of the penis. Once that head of the penis is exposed, we want to take the washcloth, wash the area in a circular motion all the way down to the shaft and back into the scrotum as you would with our uncircumcised males. The thing with our or I'm sorry, with our circumcised males. With our uncircumcised males, you want to return that foreskin back into these, back into its original position. So you need to take that foreskin and pull it back over the head of the penis because if we leave that foreskin down, that foreskin can actually become a tourniquet and basically cut off blood supply to the tip of the penis, which can be very painful and very detrimental to the patient. So with our uncircumcised males, we really need to make sure that we put that foreskin back in place. Again, refer to your procedural checklist for the technique on pericare. In a recent study in the United States, about 83% of adults aged 21 and older reported that they had foot, good foot health um, to excellent foot health. However, 78% reported that they had at least one foot problem. Foot problems tend to increase with age because of diseases such as atherosclerosis and peripheral vascular insufficiency. Older adults often have decreased circulation in their lower extremities. Because of this, this increases their risk of foot ulcers and infection. The incidence of diabetes is also high among our old, older adults, which further increases their risk for infection, secondary to delayed healing, and in addition, the skin becomes very dry and predisposed older adults to cracking skin, which then can lead to infection. So when we are providing nail and foot care to our patients, this should be done daily with hygiene during their bath bathing if possible. There are different types of uh, foot problems and a lot of these result in improperly fitting shoes. So we want to make sure that we are assessing our patients um, when they're ambulating with their shoes. Are their shoes too tight? Are they too loose? Because that can cause blisters to form and cause redness. It can cause um, pressure ulcers, things like that. So we really want to make sure that we are assessing our patients for that as well. When we are also um, providing care to our patients with their foot and leg care, we also want to make sure that we're comparing left to right. Does the left leg look more swollen? Do we see that the left leg maybe looks like it's more red? Things like that. So we always want to compare the left to the right. Things that we look for is for dryness, any inflammation. Do they have any signs and symptoms of fungus in between the toes? Do we notice any cracking or redness of the skin? Any odor? Do we notice that their nails are you know, different colors. We also want to assess for circulation. So things that we are going to look for is we're going to look for any edema, okay? What type of edema do they have? Is it pitting edema? Um, is it just mild edema that we notice just in the legs? Is that edema come all the way down to their foot? 
We also want to check their cap refill, check for their circulation. So when we are providing foot and nail care to our patients, we're also doing a lot of assessments. Always make sure that you follow your agency's policies regarding foot and nail care, especially when it comes to nail care. So with nails, as we older, they can become more brittle, become more hard. Um, a lot of times in our patients, they might um, have longer toenails that can um, get snagged, that can cause our patients to have pain with their shoes on, things like that. For us as nurses, we need to make sure that we never ever cut any of our patients' nails, especially our diabetic patients. But with that being said, we don't cut anyone's nails. But with our diabetic patients, why do you think that we don't want them to, why we wouldn't want to cut their nails? Well, what if we accidentally cut too, too far, okay? And then now we have a opening for infection. As I just stated with our diabetic patients, they have poor circulation to that area. So they're gonna have poor healing. They're not gonna get the oxygen and the nutrients that they need to heal that. And now it's gonna develop into an ulcer and now they're gonna have more and more problems. So that's just an example of why we don't cut nails on our diabetic patients. But we don't cut nails on any of our patients for those reasons as well. If our patient needs their nails trimmed, we will let the nurse at the agency know. Usually that patient will go on a list and then a doctor usually comes around and will actually cut those patients' um, toenails for them. So we as nurses, we do not cut um, patients' nails. So even if they hand you the nail clipper and say, can you please cut this nail? We cannot do that. Things that we can do is we can help file down the nails. So if there is a sharp um, area that maybe their nail did get um, cracked or something like that, we can help file that nail down to help that, um, that sharp area, but we never cut those nails at all. So we wanna make sure that we do encourage our patients to also inspect their feet daily, okay? Now this may be difficult with patients that have visual problems, they're not able to bend over, they have weakness. We also want to think about those patients that have neuropathy. So they have loss of, like they have nerve damage, so they're not able to feel the pain in their feet and their leg, legs as strong and some don't even have that feeling. So they don't feel that they have a reddened area that now has opened up to a um, ulcer or wounds. So we really do want to encourage that our patients do look and inspect their feet themselves but also you as well. So just making sure that we do that. If our patient, if we come in and our patient is wearing socks or they're wearing support hose, um, we do need to take those off so that we do actually assess their feet their nails, things like that. We can't just say that, oh yes, the patient had socks on, so I wasn't able to assess that. No, you as the nurse, you need to make sure you take their socks off and you really assess those feet. Um, and usually this is done with their baths. Next, we're gonna talk about hair care. So hair should be brushed daily to remove any tangles, massage the scalp, stimulate circulation, 
and distribute oil down the hair shaft. Make sure that when you are assisting the patient in brushing their hair that you make sure that the brush bristles are not, not too sharp because you don't want to cause any injury to the patient's scalp. Combs can be used with our male patients um, that have fine hair. Um, just making sure that again we don't cause any injury to their scalp. For purposes of hygiene, you need to obtain any information from the patient's chart about any hair problems or current conditions that may be needing treatment or any diseases or therapy that can affect the patient's hair. So for example, like chemotherapy, maybe our patient is losing hair, things like that because of the chemo medications that that patient is on. Maybe there's factors such as the patient's ability to manage his or her hair and scalp because maybe they have weakness in their arms and they're not able to reach up to their hair to brush their hair, things like that. So we really need to make sure that we are assessing our patients and individualizing this care as well. If our patients have dandruff, um, which is a condition where there's excessive shedding of the epidermal layer of the scalp, they may need a special shampoo um, for this condition. So we wanna make sure that we look into those patients' charts so that we are providing the products that that patient needs for that particular patient. Please never ever cut the patient's hair. Um, this is something that could get you in trouble. Um, so if the patient asks you to cut their hair, just say that you're not able to cut their hair. Um, there are beauticians that are on site that can um, cut hair, style hair, um, provide all those needs for those patients. So please just remember not to cut any patient's hair. Also, when you are going to shower a patient and um, make sure that that patient actually gets their hair washed during their shower. Some of the patients, um, the clients in the long-term care facility, they actually go to the beautician and get their hair set, they get perms, things like that, and they do not want their hair to get wet during their shower. So they might wear like a shower cap, things like that, and they would be really upset, especially those our older female patients, they're very particular about their hair, um, which is totally fine. We just wanna make sure that we are providing care that's according to their patient preferences. So we, if they don't want their hair to get wet during their shower, then we need to respect that and make sure that we are um, providing that to our patient. Shampooing a patient's hair helps clean the hair and the scalp. It can also be very soothing and relaxing for many patients. Hair can be shampooed while the patient is in both the shower, um, if they're standing or sitting. Um, it can be do, you can do it even if they're in bed. There's different devices that we can um, utilize to shampoo a patient's hair even when they're um, in bed. We want to make sure that we do protect the patient's eyes with a dry washcloth and make sure that the water temperature is appropriate for that patient. For some patients, they might not be able to tolerate um, standard shampooing, so we might need to use a dry shampoo as an alternative. Um, 
They also have no rinse shampoos that can also be used and then they also have showering caps that can be utilized. Now these aren't as good at getting the patient's hair clean as just regular shampooing but it can be replaced if the patient needs it. So here's an example of those. Here's the no rinse shampoo. So just make sure you read the um, directions on the package. You just apply it to the patient's hair. Um, and again, it's no rinse, so you don't have to worry about um, you know, having a basin or anything like that to rinse the patient's hair out. And they also have these caps that have a commercially prepared no rinse shampoo in them as well. So what you do is you, you place the cap on the patient and then you do what this nurse is doing is you just slowly massage the uh, scalp and that uh, commercially prepared product goes into that patient's hair to help cleanse the hair. They also have different um, devices that we can use to help actually shampoo the patient's hair when they're in bed as well. So there's different things that we can utilize to help our patients. Oral care or mouth care is super important. It facilitates the removal of food particles and secretions. It decreases the incidence of hospital-acquired pneumonia. It can improve appetite. And it's also a great time for us as nurses to assess that oral cavity. So we can assess for different conditions of the mouth. We can look at the oral uh, mucosal membranes. We can also assess the teeth. Do we notice any cavities, any broken teeth? Have we noticed any gingivitis, any swollen redness to the gums that could possibly affect our patients? There are many common problems of the mouth. Dental cavities and periodontalar disease are one of the two most frequent problems that affect the teeth. So we can see many different conditions that occur with the mouth, such as halitosis, which is bad breath, and this usually results because of poor oral hygiene, eating certain foods, tobacco use, dental um, cavities or infections that can kind of lead to that um, bad breath. We have also know what dental caries are, cavities, tartar, that can also be found um, in our patient's mouth. Now with these, this might cause our patients not to be eating enough um, because of pain, things like that. Maybe they have sensitivity to hot and cold, so they're not eating certain foods, things like that. So again, we want to make sure that we assess our patients for that. Periodontalar disease, this is a major cause of teeth loss in our patients. It is caused by inflammation of the um, gums, bleeding and receding of the gums, and it also um, causes damage to the surrounding bone structures. A lot of times with this, um, patients then, they don't, they get their teeth removed and maybe they're not eating as much because of the pain, uh, things like that. So again, we want to make sure that we are assessing our patients for their teeth, their gums, things like that. Gingivitis is the inflammation of the gum tissue surrounding the teeth. If untreated, this can lead to periodontalar disease where we're going to have those loose teeth. They're gonna fall out, they're gonna have inflamed gums, those receding gums, bleeding, things like that. So again, we really wanna make sure that we pay close attention to our patient's mouth, oral care, and teeth. 
Some patients might also get stomatitis. So this is inflammation of the oral mucosa. Has numerous different causes such as bacteria, maybe they had some sort of trauma, any uh, nutrition deficits, um, systemic infections. Usually patients complain about pain um, and they also will also notice halitosis as well. Glottitis, this is inflammation of the tongue caused by deficiency of vitamin B12, folic acid, and iron. So we can also see this in our patients as well. We also, as nurses, want to make sure that when we are providing oral care to our patients that we have them open their mouth, we look for any lumps, any ulcers, white patches or red patches, any bleeding, persistent sores or numbness, because these could be indicators of oral malignancies. So we would need that patient to see a dentist immediately. So we'd wanna notify the nurse if we notice any problems in their mouth, such as these, okay? After we assess our patient's mouth for their teeth, their mucous membranes, their tongue, we wanna make sure that we document all of those pieces in our documentation as well. While every patient should be provided oral care, there are patients that require more frequent oral care. So our patients that are dehydrated. So when we are assessing a patient that's dehydrated, things that we notice is that their lips are cracked, their mucous membranes are dry. So those, when those areas become cracked um, or irritated, that can be a source for infection to get in there. So we wanna make sure that we're providing really good oral care. Mouth breathers. Again, why? Because it dries up those mucous membranes, it cracks those um, that mucous membranes and it really can become irritating for that patient. Same thing with patients that are on oxygen. It can really dry out those mucous membranes, so we really need to pay, pay close attention to that. Patients that are vomiting or nauseous, as maybe some of you know, after you have experienced an episode of vomiting, the first thing you want to do is brush your teeth, get all that um, saliva, all of that out of your mouth, and the same thing with our patients. So we need to make sure that we offer that if our patients have an episode of vomiting or they become nauseous. Our unconscious and our dying patients also need frequent oral care. Again, those mucous membranes can become very dry, um, they can they can open up. It also is really good to help wash away any sort of bacteria that could be in their mouth. It will help prevent uh, pneumonia, a healthcare acquired pneumonia from occurring. So again, we really wanna make sure that we are providing meticulous oral care to those patients. Certain patients that might be on medications, such as laxatives, chemotherapy agents, Tranquilizers may also need frequent oral care as well. For providing oral care, please refer to your procedural checklist and your skills videos. It just depends on what type of oral care you are providing your patients. There's different types of products that we can use, such as we can just use the toothbrush and toothpaste. We do have oral swab sponges. We do have those kidney basins that patients are able to provide oral care in bed different mouthwash, water, suction may uh, be needed for our patients that are unconscious. Uh, we wanna make sure that we have all that. So please refer to your procedural checklists regarding how you're going to be providing oral care to your patient. Providing oral care for patients who are unconscious. 
Oral care for unconscious patients are, is particularly important because of how often they breathe through their mouth. And especially if they're receiving oxygen, um, if they have any tubes in place, anything like that. Again, like I stated before, your mucous membranes can become very dry. So we wanna make sure that we are providing that oral care. Make sure that you follow agency practices for the type and frequency of how often this needs to be done. In some facilities, if our patient is unconscious, um, we may need to perform oral care every one to two hours. Yes, every one to two hours. This is very important. Now, with an unconscious patient, they sometimes do respond to oral stimulation by biting down. So just make sure that you're very careful um, when providing oral care to your patients. Make sure that you have suction available if that gag reflux is absent because we don't want our patients to choke, aspirate, anything like that. So we want to make sure that we are providing good, safe oral care to these patients. Again, refer to your procedural checklist and your skills videos for a video on how to perform oral care on your patient. So next we are going to talk about care of dentures. So patients may have a complete set of removable dentures or just an upper or lower plate. They may have a bridge or a partial plate that consists of one or more artificial teeth. That bridge may be permanently fastened to other teeth or it may be removed. So you can ask your patient as far as if their um, dentures are able to be removed. Um, and you can also look that up in your care plan as well. Poorly fitted or loose dentures can lead to chewing difficulties and even nutritional deficits. And this is because it becomes very painful for that patient to eat certain, to eat foods, things like that. So they're not eating as frequently because they're not fitting properly. So we need to make sure that we report any um, improper fitting dentures to the nurse so that that patient can then get resized for those. Dentures are very expensive, so just make sure that you are handling these with care. With patients that have dentures and you're helping take those dentures out of the patient's mouth and you're up by the sink, place a towel in that sink because if you drop those dentures in those porcelain sinks, those dentures can crack. But if you have a nice washcloth at the bottom of the sink, that can help protect those dentures from breaking. Because again, when you have gloves on, you're getting those dentures wet, they become very slippery. Always use cool water. Warm water can actually make the molding of those dentures change and then it can cause them to become loose fitting. So you always wanna make sure that when the dentures are removed, you inspect that oral cavity, making sure that their gums look healthy, no redness, no sores. Remove those dentures at night and store them in a cup. There are commercially prepared tablets that can be placed in those to help clean them, but you also should brush those, brush those dentures to remove any food particles before storing them in the cup at night. And then, as always, refer to your procedural checklist for a step-by-step -step instruction on how to care for dentures, and then you can also look in your skills videos as well. Alrighty, so next we're gonna talk about some other ADLs. So we're gonna talk about shaving, back care, eye care, and ear care next. You have made it through two thirds of your presentation. So if you need to stand up, get up, get a snack, and then meet me back here and we can talk about the rest of the other ADLs that we're going to talk about. Make sure you do take a break. 
So next we're gonna talk about shaving our patients. Depending on the culture, shaving is an important part of grooming and helps the patient feel better about their appearance. Many men shave their facial hair every day and some women may shave and remove axillary or leg hair. You may not see this done in the long-term care facility as much. If a patient is taking a anticoagulant medication or has some sort of bleeding disorder, you must use an electric razor. So you would not use a straight razor, you would use an electric razor. And this is because if the patient were to cut themselves while shaving, it would be more difficult to stop that bleeding. So we would use the electric razor on these patients because it minimizes them getting cut. With our patient's uh, facial hair, sometimes it is easier if you get a washcloth and have warm water on it and then place it on the patient's face to kind of help soften the hair. It makes it a little bit easier when shaving your patients. Please do refer to your procedural checklist, but here on the next slide I am going to go over some points with shaving as well. So when shaving a patient, make sure you raise the head of the bed, get them in a sitting position if possible. Place a towel over their chin, or I'm sorry, over their chest and their shoulders, because again, this is where we don't want to get the patient's gown, all wet, things like that. Place that warm, moistened washcloth over the patient's face for several seconds. This helps the patient kind of soften those hair, um, and it makes it a little bit easier to shave. Apply shaving cream and then shave in the direction of the hair growth with the razor at a 45 degree angle. Rinse dry and then moisturize per those patient's preference. Again, do make sure that you refer to your procedural checklist for a step-by-step -step guide on shaving. Alrighty, so back hair. This usually follows bathing, okay? This stimulates circulation. You wanna make sure that you um, Avoid areas that could become painful. We don't want to massage any areas, redden areas or any breakdown or any areas that may have an open wound. Um, but back hair, basically we um, help provide lotion. We can lotion the back um, for the patient. The thing that you need to make sure that you know this is not massaging. You're not massaging the patient. You're just providing lotion to the back looking at the back, assessing for any skin breakdown. If they have any red areas, you know, if we need to apply any sort of specialized cream, anything like that, any medicated um, creams for any rashes, things like that, that's when we would provide that. If your patient asks you to like massage their back, things like that, that is not appropriate. Um, that is not in our scope in nursing um, any longer. Back in the day, it, you did provide back massages um, to your patients, but we no longer do that. Um, so back care is just really, we're providing lotion to that back, we're assessing that back, um, things like that. But we're not, we're not doing like a deep tissue massage um, with our patients, nothing like that. So we're just helping stimulate that circulation by rubbing in that lotion and assessing for any breakdown um, of the skin. So eye care, we need to make sure that we are very careful when we are providing um, eye care to our patients. We really wanna make sure that um, we don't have any soap 
on the cloths that we're providing our patients. You will notice that maybe the eyelids and the eyelashes, they keep debris and dust from getting out to our eyes. Sometimes we can notice some like drainage, crusting in our eyes, so we really wanna make sure that we help clean those eyes um, for our patients. So we need to make sure we use a different washcloth for the eyes. We don't wanna have any cross-contamination at all, and we don't wanna have any soap on that as well. So you're gonna clean from the inner canthus of the eye to the outer canthus of the eye. Because again, we wanna clean from cleanest to dirtiest, and we don't wanna bring anything back into the eye. So we wanna take that washcloth and wash from the inner to the outer canthus of that eye. Again, no soap. And with our unconscious patients, we might need to keep their eyes lubricated, so the physician might order saline or artificial teardrops to be placed. And then we also wanna make sure that we keep the eyelids closed to help keep those eyes moisturized. So that would be in um, your physician's orders that you would see that as far as eye care. So takeaways for eyes is we really wanna make sure that again, when performing our hygiene care that we're inspecting the eyes for redness, any lesions, swelling, crusting, excessive tearing, or any discharge. We also wanna look at the color of the conjunctiva and also assess the patient's records to see if they wear glasses, contact lenses, things like that. Because again, we wanna make sure that that would be removed before we would put any sort of, or provide any sort of um, care to those eyes. Next, we're gonna talk about ear care. So healthy ears usually require minimal care. However, you may need to help patients who have limited self-care abilities and teach others about self-care. So if they have any wax buildup in their ears, we wanna make sure that we teach them that that wax needs to be removed because it can cause hearing loss, but we wanna make sure that they don't use any sort of bobby pins or q-tips to try to get that wax out. Um, what is really good is you take a corner of a washcloth, get it nice and wet, and um, have them kind of put their finger in that washcloth in the ear to help remove any of that buildup of that wax that could be causing that hearing loss. Um, we really want to make sure that we um, educate them uh, not using the bobby pins or q-tips because it can damage that eardrum so we just need to be very careful as far as that. If our patient wears hearing aids, we want to make sure that we do protect those. Those are very expensive so making sure that when we are giving our patients bath that we do take them out. We don't want them to get wet so we want to make sure that we put them in a container and store them properly. Some even take out their batteries when they're not in, um, when the hearing aids are not in their ears to help save the batteries because again, those can be very expensive. So just making sure that you are keeping track of the patient's um, hearing aids and protecting them and keeping them away from any moisture. Something that I also wanna touch on is dressing and undressing patients with weakness. So these, I always think, I kind of think of my stroke patients, but these are not always your stroke patients. Um, these are patients that have maybe one side of their body or even both sides of their body that um, is weaker. But usually with our stroke patients or maybe they have sh shoulder surgery, they have some sort of um, injury 
to a particular extremity, it can make dressing and undressing very difficult. So there is a way to make it a little bit easier. So when you are undressing a patient, you are going to remove clothing from the strongest side first. And we do that because if you think about it, their strong shoulder, they should have full range of motion. So they can pull that arm and shoulder back to get that arm out of that sleeve. Then we take that piece of clothing, we then pull it off the weak arm. So we always remove clothing from the strong side first. Then when we're dressing a patient, it's the opposite. You wanna put the clothing on the weak side first. And again, for same reason. So we're gonna place that, um, you know, sleeve through that arm and then we can drape it over. And then our strong arm, we have full range of motion again, so we can grab that shirt or that jacket or that sweater and we can then put it in on that strong side. So when you're dressing, you put the clothing on the weak side first. Make sure you do support the limb when you are doing this as well. So I wanna to touch on this a little bit. You guys are gonna get more of this as you guys advance on through your um, block here, but I think it's important to mention because if you guys are going into clinical setting, I want you guys to be able to know what this equipment is. So we're gonna talk about anti-embolism devices. So there are TED hose, which are these um, compression-like stockings. They can be either um, knee-high or they can be thigh-high that helps compress the veins of the legs and increases venous return to the heart. So you might see a lot of patients that have these. These can be very difficult to take on and off, so please refer to your procedural checklist as far as um, how to put these on and off. Also, if you work in the hospital setting, I'm sure you've probably put these on or off a patient. Help out your fellow classmates and come up with cool tricks to the trade on how to put these on and off. We will share some of ours during the preclinical time, but if you have another one that you think works really well, just, just let your classmates um, or one of us know. There's also these um, anti-embolism devices that are um, put on our patients as well. So these devices can be ordered by the physician and we just put these on the patient's legs and it basically kind of pumps air um, and kind of massages the legs in a sense to help get circulation going so that it prevents any sort of blood clots from getting into the legs for patients who are um, bed bound. So you might see those ordered on uh, your patients as well. Last but not least, we are gonna talk about feeding our patients. Remember that when we are having our patients sit down for a meal, it should be an enjoyable experience. We wanna make sure that we prepare our patient before their tray arrives, making sure that they're fully awake, that they're sitting up. We wanna place a towel or a chin protector on our patients, never call them a bib. Um, you want to sit down while you're feeding the patient. You want to make sure that you're at eye level. If you're standing and feeding a patient, um, this can show that you're in a hurry, that you're not there, and um, it can take away that enjoyable time for that patient. When you're feeding a patient, make sure that you know their diet order, okay? Some patients might require fluids to be thickened, they might require a pureed diet where food is actually pure pureed 
so that it's easier to swallow depending on their condition that's going on with that patient. So you really need to make sure that you look at the patient's diet order. Are they on a diabetic diet? Are they on a pureed diet? Are they on soft foods only? You need to really look at that and make sure when that tray gets placed in front of that patient that that actually matches what the patient has ordered. I'm going to share a story. I work in the emergency department and had a patient come in who received tube feedings. So basically we fed this, the patient got fed through a tube that was put into uh, this patient's stomach and that's how she got her nutrition. This patient um, came in by ambulance and was reported to having a choking episode. So this was strange to me because this patient had a choking episode but got tube fed. So I thought, well, maybe this patient's having a lot of secretions. I'm not sure what's, what's going on here. It's just the report seemed a little bit off. So EMS arrived, kind of gave report and said, you know, it, apparently the patient choked. Um, you know, the patient's tube fed though, but nobody actually looked into this patient's mouth. So we, me and one of my other coworkers, we opened the patient's mouth and we noticed that this patient had a piece of chicken stuck in the patient's throat. We immediately pulled that chicken out. It was a pretty lengthy piece of chicken that was lodged in that patient's throat. This patient, um, due to some health, um, conditions wasn't really able to speak um, but was able to form the words thank you as she took a gasp of air. So why am I telling you that story? Well one it's very scary that this patient who is supposed to not get any food by mouth actually got a full piece of chicken lodged in their throat. It just I just don't know how that even got there because the patient had um, issues with um, range of motion in her arms so she wasn't able to lift her arms at all. So somebody must have fed her that chicken. Okay, and this patient's diet order was definitely not um, having any solid food. She got tube fed. So when I say look at the patient's diet order, truly make sure you know what the patient's diet order is. There are different types of diets that can be ordered, especially with um, patients who have had strokes in the past that have difficulty swallowing. Sometimes they are not able to swallow regular liquids because they're too thin and they actually can cause them to aspirate. So what they do is they place a gelatin in those um, fluids. It still tastes the same, it's just it looks more um, like a thicker consistency to help those patients swallow. So please, please, please check your patient's diet order. For patients that you have to feed, try to use a spoon, okay? The spoon, um, if you use a fork, it can kind of be um, a little bit harmful to patients. Just kind of depends on what you're, what you're um, feeding them. But try to use a spoon, hold it at a 45 degree angle, alternate between liquids and solids, okay? Make sure that the patient, the amount of food that you put on the spoon um, is appropriate for that patient, okay? Ask the patient what order they want the food in. Again, we wanna promote that independence. What do they want? Also, don't feed them the things that you only think look good. 
if you're like, oh, this patient got beets and I hate beets, well, I'm not gonna feed them that. Well, maybe that particular patient loves beets, that's their favorite. So really just have that patient have that independence and ask the patient what order they want their food in, change it up, provide them liquids in between. For patients that have a CVA or a stroke, uh, make sure that you're feeding them on their unaffected side, okay? So if they have a stroke and it affected their left side, we want to feed them on their right side more so so that they're not pocketing food because we don't want them to choke at all. Also, after eating, you just make sure that you have them open their mouth and check for any um, food that could be there and then offer them fluids um, to make sure that we get that food out of there because we don't want them laying down or having that food there because they can choke. Make sure that you watch the patient and that you see, you check for their swallowing. They're not having any difficulties keeping that food down. If you notice that every sip of water that they have, they're coughing, things like that, you really need to be on high alert for because um, maybe that patient's having difficulty swallowing, things like that. Wipe their mouth with a napkin um, as needed. Because again, we want to make sure that this is an enjoyable time for our patients. We provide that independence and we also don't want, um, you know, food all over, the, all over them as well. When you are feeding the patient, don't blow on the patient's food to cool it off, okay? I know, um, you know, some of you guys might be parents out there and that's what you did for your children, but you know, this, this is a person that um, is not related to you, so they don't want you blowing on their food. Don't taste the patient's food either and tell them like, oh yeah, this tastes good or this is not good and don't hurry them through the meal. I know those kind of seem like common sense things, um, but you know, in the environment, you might accidentally by habit blow on the patient's food because that's what you're used to with um, you know, being a parent or, or whatever it is. So we just really need to be mindful of, of those things with our patient. When the meal is through, you want to remove the tray, clean up any spills or crumbs um, that the patient might have, wipe the patient's mouth off with a napkin, offer any toileting, and have the patient wash their hands um, when they are done as well. Alrighty, so that completes your activities of daily living lecture. Um, bring any questions that you have with to um, your preclinical days. Now, some of these um, things we will be reviewing in the preclinical setting. The reason that you had to listen to this audio recording before is so that you could get more hands-on experience through your preclinical times. That's um, one of the biggest things that we want to make sure that you guys get is that hands-on experience. So that's why you had to listen to um, this portion ahead of time. And it also provides you with a really good background of information so that when you come into preclinical, you feel a little bit more prepared on um, what we will be doing. Now, some of you guys work in the healthcare setting already, and some of this information may be a review, but as I always say, in the medical field, you're always continuously learning. So hopefully you um, learn something new that you didn't know um, in this presentation or you realize, oh, I'm not doing that in my practice and maybe I need to change that up. So there's always something to be learned um, 
when listening to this. Also, we need to make sure that everybody is provided the same information. So some of your classmates don't work in that hospital setting, so they don't have that experience. So if you do have that experience, help a classmate out in your clinical setting that might not have that experience and kind of help them with the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have as well. So more to come. I will see you guys during your preclinicals.